0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Little Willie John biographer Susan Whitehall joins Nate to tell the story of a man James Brown feared to follow, who could out-sing Sam Cooke, was covered by the Beatles, and yet is barely remembered today. Nate and Susan talk about John's fast rise to fame, fall from grace, and tragic and mysterious death in prison. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. to
2: Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Susan Whitehall, author of Fever, Little Willie John, A Fast Life, Mysterious Death, and the Birth of Soul. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. It's our pleasure. And so tell us a little bit about Little Willie John. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Beatles covered one of his songs on an unreleased track. What else do people know about him in the, the quick summary?
1: Well, I think um his his the fact that people don't know who he is, um the people who do know who he is are some of the best loved and known musicians of our time, you know, the Bob Dylan's, the Beatles, the Elvis Presley was a big fan of his. So, I think that alone should tell you something and and maybe make people delve into his work more than they have. And he was at a key spot, I think, in the history of rhythm and blues and rock. He he was sort of a bridge between the early days and the later soul days, because he really could sing it all. He sang with Count Basie when he was a kid in Detroit. He sang, you know, he could do jazz. My love is still it still stands up as a great little jazz recording, almost and. He could he could do soul he could do R and B and at the time in the fifties they called him a rock singer which was perfect because <laughs> it encompasses everything
2: and and he came to a tragic end at an early age
1: yeah and um, he he accomplished quite a lot because the bulk of his recording is re- was really done in ten years when you think about that that's incredible but um, yeah to have created something like the song fever which um Peggy Lee's version is so dependent upon his, it never would have existed, of course, without him. And according to today's songwriting standards, he should have gotten a co-writing credit on Fever because he added so much to it. Uh, at the time, though, you were out of luck. If you were a young kid singer, a teenager, and it didn't matter how much you brought to it, how much you changed it. Um, but yeah, for him to have created that and the other songs that he did, he was the co-writer of Leave My Kitten Alone, which of course is one of the best loved, uh, Beatles songs, Beatles recordings, even though it was bootlegged for years. He's, he's just an incredible, um, underground source that it, it really is such a rewarding thing to look into his music, to play it. People have probably heard his songs without knowing it. Um, that happened to me as a kid. I heard "Sleep" on the radio in Philadelphia when I was about probably eight or something. So, and I heard it later on, I'm like ah, that's Little Willie John. Oh my god! So and his
2: singing is incredible. I mean, in in your book, you quote people who compare him, you know, to Aretha Franklin and Aretha Franklin only. That this is a guy who routinely cut Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, James Brown. Blew him off stage and could sing circles around him. I mean, his range is incredible, and the vibrato he puts on the high notes, and he can go yeah. way higher, like almost an octave higher than almost any male singer I can think of, and still has a powerful bass sound.
1: Right, because it's it's not falsetto. He's just singing. Um, his both his sons became singers, Keith John and Kevin John. Keith John still sings backup for Stevie Wonder, and in fact, he's the only male backup singer that Stevie's ever had. And they're both wonderful singers. Kevin kind of inherited Willie's lower range and mid-range, and Keith has always been able to sing those high Willie notes. <laughs> Although Even Keith says... He, he says, "I can sing high, but I can't sing dad high." <laughs> you know? He he would have to really make an effort, and he'd do it, but um, it really took an effort. And Willie kept that ability; um, he didn't lose it as he got older, even though he he only lived to twenty nine, sadly. But yeah, for him to retain the power and the tone at that high range is very unusual, and it's really fun to listen to.
2: And there's a story in your book that is pretty mind-boggling. It's a story about Willie and he's hanging out with Jackie Wilson and another singer I think named Dizzy Jones and they get into a cutting contest and Jackie Wilson tries to warn the guy not to try to hang with <laughs> Willie. <laughs> and, yeah. And they, and tell us what happened in that.
1: It's, it's, it's hilarious because, you know, Willie could be a bit of a gangster stage, you know, in terms of and, and this is in terms of being singers. It's like, don't ever challenge him because he's going to sing higher than you every time. Jackie knew that. And Jackie knew he would do anything to win. And so this guy, he literally had to be taken to the hospital, um, according to several sources, just trying to top Willie in that particular cutting contest. Cutting contests were really big in Detroit, too, in most, most cities at the time. The guys would get together and, and try to outsing each other. And it's not to take anything away from Jackie, who was just an unbelievable singer himself. But um, Willie had that that thing in that upper range that nobody else could could do, and guys would hurt themselves trying.
2: <laughs> yeah, the only story I've heard comparable to that is John Lennon getting Harry, Harry Nelson to blow out his voice in a singing contest, a uh, uh, drunken singing uh, contest that uh, permanently damaged Nelson's voice. So, But the... the Talking about Willie in Detroit—that's the context he came out of. He—he's a gospel-bred singer. His parents were very strict; they wouldn't let him sing the blues.
1: Well, when um, I'd like to kind of um, kind of delineate with the term gospel, people think of today's gospel music, or they think of a slicker p- presentation than what he was exposed to. It was really, you know, it was a the Triumph Church, um, one of these holiness churches, and in uh, Detroit, it was really just old-time church music that he was singing and and hearing in church. And it was um, not like Aretha, where he was going on the road, where he was the lead singer, where he was doing a lot of this, but it was just part of the, the home life. They would be singing these songs at home, and it was almost more like folklore and folk songs and old blues songs you'd be singing. It was all the same to him. He he did get exposed to the audience and the church, um, the churchgoers. The church ladies would go crazy when he'd sing as a little boy because he had such a unearthly power. And uh, he really became addicted to the audience adulation through those experiences in the church. And the family was they did go around from church to church and they had their little group their little singing group and uh you can kind of picture it almost being like a Jackson 5 thing where the the smallest was the one with the biggest voice but he he was also the the charmer and the one who was really putting the song over so they they did get booked too it was like almost a little business back then the john family they would go around and they had a booking agent who would book them in these specific churches so he would do that and that was that was always a part of his thing but as his own siblings said he didn't learn how to sing in the church he already knew how to sing nobody taught him how to sing he just sang and it was the feeling i think that it, you can't teach that anyway
2: and and in the book you get this picture of a very precocious child a child who not only is an incredibly gifted singer um, but as a, as a bright child, an A and B student at school, and also really kind of a prodigy of navigating the streets, which is ironic in, in light of his yeah. later fate. But this is a kid who knew all the angles.
1: Yeah, he was so small, but he was able to talk his way out of trouble. And his there were a lot of boys in that family, and his father had a hard time keeping control of all of them, although he did try. He was pretty strict. But they, he would sneak out of the house, and he knew how to get around, and he knew how to fight. He was a wiry little guy, but his father would say, I don't want you to start anything, but don't let anyone finish you. So, if, And especially, he, he was very um, attentive to the way women were being treated. He didn't like to see that, so he would defend girls or his sisters anytime time he saw any of that go on. So he was willing to put his fists up and, and fight. It would do it, and uh, but his smarts kind of helped him get out of trouble and and run. And um, he his uh, sister Mabel John had provided one of his report cards from Pershing High School, and that was in his funeral program. And I had it in the book as well. As he did really, he went. He did very well there, but he was a behavior problem at times, and they were not. Um, They were very strict in the '50s and the late '40s in Detroit schools. So if you mouthed off or swore or were caught with a girl kissing her or something, you'd get sent to this school that was called the Moore School. And if you, I found out that just about every major male Motown star went to the Moore School at one time or another, because they had this great choir director there who put some of them um, back on the right path by channeling their energy into music. And uh, Willie was one of those. He was not Motown, but he was definitely helped by this guy, Mr. Irvin. And uh, Willie used to say he was his assistant choir director, maybe. But so there was that always going on with Willie. He was really smart, almost too smart for his own good, but he was also misbehaving. Um, That was part of the whole package
2: and and this the level of talent that was floating around detroit at this time i mean you'd already had johnny ray coming out of the detroit nightclubs down in washington but willie even though you know his hit record making era spans from like 55 to 61 so we tend to think of of him as a rock and roll era. Age-wise, he was really more of a peer. I mean, Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops, and he were just homies from way back, grew up together. But he's really more of the generation of of Stubbs, who's a little bit older but than Smokey Robinson and that next wave of Motown people, Marv Johnson. But Willie was right in there with two generations of R&B performers, the people that were stars when he was, as well as the, the younger people that were his age who were coming up yeah. and later...
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, He was born at 37, and Smokey was born in 40. That's just three years later, but Willie started so early, and he was experienced at such an early age, so he kind of bridged those generations. And he could sing, you know, he would go uh, bother the big bands and jump up with Count Basie and sing with them. So he he was able to sing any of that stuff, and he had that um, bravado and just the polish to his performance so and he and he and uh, Levi were running buddies from an early age because they lived in the same project in Detroit they were their families were very close going all the way back their mothers were good friends and all that so um, Levi was a good source of information on Willie and both families were his family and his sisters were helpful too um, I ran into couple of Levi sisters after my book came out and they said, you did it. You captured that time when we were growing up in the, you know, the Northeast side, six mile into Quinder, they used to call it Cardboard Valley, the, the project where they grew up. And I said, thank goodness. Thank you. <laughs> the way I did it was to talk to as many people as I could who grew up there, whether they knew Willie or not. And most of them did and to just to see what what it was like what, what were you hearing in in the street what was the music like what was it like in the clubs and you know it it wasn't that far for Willie and Levi and their their buddies to go down to where all the nightclubs were um what we call Paradise Valley Hastings Street um it was torn down in urban renewal in the late 50s and early 60s but at the time when Willie and the boys were going down there it was well, it was happening. Everybody you'd ever want to see was singing in a club on Hastings Street. So it's uh, that's that that was part of his childhood, and he grew up fast. He heard all this stuff, and it it affected him, and you know that's the way it went. So yeah, his the bridging the generations. Um, and of course he did record too. He recorded that early Christmas song. When um, he was discovered and he was 14 years old, but they tried to make him look younger and he he already looked pretty young. They tried to make out that he was younger than he was because he had that high voice. But he, he recorded that song and they actually took him to New York and Philadelphia and he did a little tour that would have been like 1951, well before 51, 52, well before the rock era or the R&B, uh, you know, where any of that stuff was going on. It was it was um, kind of a little um, kitschy hit. It was supposed to be kind of a novelty song they thought they could make out. And it was Harry Balk, who became very well-known in Detroit, who had discovered him. And Harry went on to discover and and have the record company where oh all sorts of greats, like Dill Shannon, and recorded, and he went on to work for Motown, and he had a great career. But it was Willie who first got Harry into the music business and vice versa.
2: And so Harry was a theater manager, and he put together a little foursome of guys, including a trash dump owner, a jeweler, and another guy uh, (laughs) that... That took Willie on the road, and I want to play a song from Willie, and then, uh, and then I want to hear a story about how he got his first New York television break. But first, let's hear his first hit, "All Around the World," also known as "Grits and Groceries." This is Little Willie John.
3: Grits and groceries, eggs and poultry, and Mona Lisa was a man. a fly, a light on my baby, stay with her till I die. With a toothpick in my hand, I dig a ten-foot ditch and run through the jungle fighting lines with a switch. Of course, you know I love you, baby. Yes, you know I love you, baby. Well, if
2: I don't... And that you, was Little, Little John's first rock and roll hit from 1955, all around the world, also known as Grits Saint Groceries. So tell us... He, he he does this little novelty song, Mommy, What Happened to Our Christmas Tree. They take him to New York and tell us a story about what happens in the hotel room when they see Count Basie on TV.
1: Well, the um, I was talking to Dave Usher who became a jazz producer later on and he was one of the guys who who uh, Harry Balk talked into doing this, being a co-manager. Although, as Dave said with much affection, Harry conned me into doing this. But... Um, yeah, it they were um they took Willie to New York and they were hanging out in the hotel room and one of these um early you know, tel- telephones came on and Dave seemed to think it, it might have had uh it might have been a Jerry Lewis um thing it might and it was local though it was not national and but they were in a studio and they kept saying where they were and willie wanted to go down there and they said nope nope we're going to sleep early we got a big day tomorrow you're not going anywhere so he he gave him the slip and he managed to figure out how to get down there and they're dozing off and on and talking and next thing they know they look on the tv there's willie on the on the tv He he talked himself onto the set, and he's he's there singing. Now Dave Usher, um, he's in his eighties when he when he was talking to me about all this stuff. He remembered it as vividly as if it happened yesterday, because it's like it it was just he you know stuff like this was happening all the time, and and they they really it's almost as if Willie knew his time on Earth was going to be short, so he had to pull stuff like this but they managed somehow they managed to get him back to the hotel and <laughs> do their meetings and do what they had to do
2: and and some of those meetings uh were with a guy named Harry Glover of King Records and tell us about Harry yeah. and and that relationship
1: Harry Glover was so important in in Willie's career Harry um he, Henry was the he was um very high up at King he was the guy who produced most of Willie's stuff, especially in the early days in New York, and he heard something in Willie's voice that later on when he when he did sign him, and um he did willie did all around the world in New York. Um, supposedly there you know, just like a lot of things I found out in researching Willie's life, there would be disparate stories about how something happened, including from Willie himself and um Willie used to say that. He happened upon this recording session. He happened to hear um, Henry Glover say that nobody could sing this song correctly and that he, he, Willie, could do it, and he offered to do that. It's it's certainly true that somehow Henry brought the song Grit St. Groceries to all around the world, to Willie, and they did it in the studio. And um, according to Mickey Baker, who I managed to track down in France, he... um, Willie was immediately on it, on, in the studio, and it was a perfect session. Um, Glover, once he heard Willie singing, and this was a couple years after the New York trip, the, the, once he heard Willie sing the song, he immediately called up all the first call players, such as Mickey, brought them to the studio, and he cut all around the world right there. Um, I believe Willie would have been seventeen for that song. Yeah, um, the trip with with Harry and the guys was a couple years earlier.
2: And 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 Glover is with King Records, and he's in a unique position because he's an African American A and R man and producer, which is. I think uh, unique at the time for a label of that strength. It was one of the biggest independents in the country out of Cincinnati, run by a pretty eccentric Jewish guy named Sid Nathan. <laughs> and we talked about him a lot on this show in the context of James Brown and the Delmore brothers and other uh, performers. It's the really unique record label that focused on country and Western with a boogie emphasis and rhythm and blues singers who were encouraged to cover country western songs could sit Nathan frequently on the publishing and so there's a, a real synergy there and that as long as Glover is still with King, Willie doesn't have an unbroken golden streak but he goes on a hell of a run.
1: He goes on a hell of a run and um, all the, most of that stuff was done in New York and yeah with with players like Mickey. Although it was interesting, Mickey Baker was older and sick when I talked to him by phone. I had couple long conversations with him and he was in france and uh he, met, he recalled playing on fever but he didn't recall all around the world he recalled playing on the earlier version of all around the world but not willie's and uh, i had convinced him that he indeed he was on Willie's version of all around the world um but anyway yeah glover was um he was You know, we give Motown a lot of credit, especially here in Detroit, for having white people of talent, black people of talent, drawing people from all around and having it all at this label. that King was wonderful in that way. And uh, the country stuff that Willie recorded, um, Big Blue Diamonds, etc., She Thinks I Still Care, which Elvis heard, Elvis Presley, had had it messengered to his house. And apparently it's still at Graceland on the wall. I have to go check that though. But um, Willie had a real affinity for country music. So he fit in right away when, uh, you know, Sid wanted a lot of his country stuff to be recorded by um, his R&B guys and vice versa. Although she thinks I still care was done by Dickie Lee. That was an outside song. And Dickie didn't even know that Willie had done it. So he heard it, but, um, Uh, Yeah, it was, uh, you know, finding out what was recorded in uh, Cincinnati and what was recorded in New York. For a long time there, Henry Glover was in charge of the New York office, so that's where Willie would be. But just as much, in fact, for the the fever session itself, from everything I could find out and research, it was done in Cincinnati, fever was, and it was uh, a different guitar player, not Mickey on that. Bill Jennings and, and,
2: uh, and that's yeah. a classic example of of the vagaries of memory. Because Baker has yeah. vivid memories, he knows the chords of the song, and he's taking I credit know. for <laughs> unusual jazz <laughs> chords. So. Um, you know, I know, amazing thing about research that you get to the bottom of that stuff. Although this is one of those Mickey Baker playing on fever is kind of one of those uh, print the legend uh, stories rather than the truth, you know? Um,
1: well, yeah. And it's kind of like Bob Dylan saying that he hitchhiked through um, down the whole length of Michigan. And he happened to run into a club where as a teenager and he saw little Willie John singing. You know? <laughs> I present it. I present it. And I say it's possible. It's true. The, the years could line up, but it's also possible it's Myth-Making by Bob Dylan, who I was pleased to... My, my friend Peter Wolf actually got him a copy of the book, so Dylan
2: read (laughs) it that's cool and and i got a little ahead of myself because i jumped to the recording career but willie actually went out on the road shortly after the new york the first new york trip with a guy named paul williams who's famous for a big dance song called the hucklebuck and williams is one of these figures kind of like lucky millinder or roy brown that's in that pre rock and roll stage. He's right there between swing uh, jump blues and, and rock and roll. And so Willie kind of bridges three eras in a way he's, he's connected to this, the, the jump blues era. He's a blues singer. I mean, getting on stage with count Basie and then, you know, right there with his peers, Jackie Wilson and James Brown and the and the evolution of soul. Uh, and like we said, a, a big evolution, uh, uh, part of the evolution of Motown. But one one thing I want to talk about Willie is, you know, when I first became aware of Willie was because of Leave My Kitten Alone and The Beatles Connection. But then the next thing is like reading book like books like Peter Goralnik's biography of Sam Cooke or James Brown's autobiography or, or Ray Charles' autobiography. And Little Willie John kind of recurs as this he's a, he's a factor. I mean, he's always talked about with great respect, but he's also sort of like, not quite the bad guy, but the bad example, you know, where he's, (laughs) he's, he's the screw up on the road. He's the guy doing too much drugs. He's the fool gambling away his money. He's the guy, uh, you know, his little sister, Mabel John was a backup singer for Ray Charles, but starts out on tour with Willie. And basically the mandate was, from her chaperone and parents, go anywhere except where Willie is. That's how you stay out of trouble on the road. <laughs>
1: right. Oh, well, and Willie himself, he, that was his older sister, but he would lock her in her room. He didn't want her going out and doing what he was doing. It was okay for him, though. Oh, he, he was protective in that weird way. Um, and
2: when you researched it, the book, did you find that, that those tales were overblown, or was Willie as wild as, as his reputation?
1: Well, you know, I wanted to have a nuanced picture of him, which is also what, um, you know, um, his his son, Kevin, wanted that to. To their credit, the family never asked me not to put something in. They never wanted me to avoid anything. Um, they just wanted it done in, in what Kevin called a tasteful way, which I took to mean I had pretty much carte blanche.
2: <laughs> Let's hear uh, Little Willie John do in Fever, which probably doesn't have mickey baker on it but might have the ghost of mickey baker on it uh, this is little lilly john's version of fever never
3: know how much i care when you put your arms around me i get a feeling that's a so hard to bear. you give me fever when
2: that was little Willie John doing the song Fever which you named the book after and which became an enormous pop hit for Peggy Lee maybe a career defining hit for Peggy Lee Um, and as we said I think that's a really good illustration of the way Willie bridges the jazz and the rock and roll influence that to me is more of a jazz pop song than than a, a heavy jazz song it's not it's not a white song or a soft song but it's It's very jazzy and sophisticated.
1: It is. It is. Yeah. And and talking about Willie being on the road and being wild, I have to say, um, Clarence Avant said that it almost killed him being the road manager for Willie early in his career. That was his first non-club job for Clarence, who, of course, went on to have Sussex records and Bill withers and all that. And, uh... Same thing with Harry Balk, his first manager. Harry said he finally had to give up managing Willie because the calls at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., he just, he would freeze in bed like, what on earth has happened now? (laughs) Willie's in some distant city, in trouble, asking for money, whatever. Um, but at the same time, I think, I think some of the drug taking was a little exaggerated because Willie had a problem with epilepsy and oftentimes if, you're taking phenobarbital, or if you're not, um, it can be mistaken uh, a spell for being drunk. So sometimes when he was drunk, he really was drunk. Sometimes he was having a spell. He was having a you know a seizure. But um, and and Willie around this time is is
2: a road warrior, and he's he's a wild man, but he's delivering the goods and. And he inherits Little Richard's band, the Upsetters, a legendary crew out of New Orleans. And for a while there, I mean, could anybody touch him on the R&B circuit?
1: Oh, no, no. And even Little Richard says that, that that they were almost born to play behind Willie. And uh, I was so lucky to be able to talk to, uh, you know, at least some of the guys. And then uh, I I had access to a, a manuscript that the drummer had written about just what it was like to back Willie up on stage and how powerful his vocals were. You know, they'd come out in the style of the 50s and they would play first. And then after a couple of songs, he'd come out, he'd start singing before he even came out onto the stage. And it, his voice was so powerful, they could see the, the curtains ruffling right before he came out. So, yeah, they'd be walking the bar, you know, the saxophone players and doing all their, their crazy stuff. And he'd keep up with that, although he didn't. I got two different views of Willie on stage. One said he could dance just like anybody. And the other view was he didn't have to dance. He'd just flatfoot sing. Mm. So probably a little of both going on.
2: And tragically, there's no video evidence of Willie performing. The only video we have is a, a cameo of him playing a bongos on Route 66. But despite Route, having yeah. done multiple TV appearances in his life, none of those were kept for posterity.
1: Yeah, he's playing clays there. But, um, yeah, I know that it's got to be out there because he was on American Bandstand at least three or four times that's documented. And the whole thing about, oh, that stuff's burned up in a warehouse fire. No, it didn't. Stuff keeps trickling out. And he was on uh, the early, early Tonight Show, his his sons told me. Uh, I tried to look into that when I, I couldn't find anything. He was on a, couple, a bunch of New York shows. He, he was on uh, other regional programs. And I know back then a lot of musicians had those early um, cameras and they were experimenting with them. Uh, Back then it was 16 millimeter, you know, and guy, I know Levi Stubbs said he had one, um, didn't have any footage of Willie, unfortunately, but they would go out and they would film at the Apollo. And know somebody had to have been at the Apollo with a film, with camera and got something. So I'm still confident something will turn up. I just think it's probably somewhere in a box and nobody knows what it is. So if you listen...
2: And you've got a if you got a box that your granny handed down to you that says Little Willie John on TV, please dig that up and let us know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and and Willie like comes out of the gate with a number five R and B hit with with All Around the World and a number one R and B hit with Fever. Fever gets on the pop charts in the lower twenties, but then he has kind of a cold streak in nineteen fifty seven and isn't on the charts at all. How do you and but he recovers from that with talk to me," which might be his most beloved song what 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 do you make of that cold streak? was that a function of King records not knowing what to do with him because James Brown had a very long cold streak after his first hit, as well with king What do you attribute to that?
1: I don't think it was any any one thing in particular. He was touring a lot at that point. he was very successful um I think maybe they were. Uh, not getting him the best material, it wasn't working out as well. That's around the period when he really wanted uh, a more highbrow presentation, a more upscale presentation. He wanted strings on his songs, and they weren't. They. they uh, Sid Nathan had a pretty, very uh, standard view of what R and B was. You know, it was saxophone, guitar, bass, drums, but not strings. And he had to kind of fight his way into allowing them to see him as a ballad singer as well, not just a, quote, rock and roller. And um, so I think that might have been going on a little bit. Um, And, of course, he proved them all wrong with Talk to Me. it's a beautiful ballad. And uh, and it went on from there. But, uh, yeah, maybe he was too busy buying Cadillacs and (laughs) being being Willie and having fun. Although that, they they had him in
2: the studio quite a bit. Yeah, they were turning out uh, the talking uh, the marking the tape, but the Cadillac thing, that's another thing where King tended to pay Willie in Cadillacs. And Yeah. And Willie was very young and may or may not have understood that every time he took a Cadillac or he asked for an advance on the road, that that was not only being docked against his record royalties, but was extending the life of his contract.
1: Right. Uh, He never. He always thought in terms of um, how many, how many singles and albums he was delivering to them, instead of thinking in terms of time, and uh, or vice versa. It was just not. He he wasn't really well uh, advised. He didn't have a good lawyer telling him about these things, and it was delaying the inevitable. And he couldn't get out from under the yoke of that contract when he wanted to. When when Sid started to get sick and Willie's career had really hit the skids, uh, it would have benefited him if he could have gotten um, onto Capitol and had Capitol release that later recording. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but he was being um, courted a bit by them, and that would have been a, a fresh start. But there's no way Sid was not going to let that happen while he was living. He just wouldn't let him off. And technically... Willie was tied; he had nothing to do. He, he still had to he still owed them sides
2: and and James Brown almost ended up having to take over king records to to
1: yeah to
2: win, and that was after Sid nathan died uh to to win those contract battles. I mean Sid Nathan was a force, and Willie was not the most together businessman uh by any stretch of the imagination. But one person he did let go was Henry Glover, and so once Glover leaves King. Uh, Willie's kind of adrift and let's hear one more song let's hear uh, Leave My Kitten Alone which was an R&B hit and famously covered by the Beatles this is Willie Little Willie John doing Leave My Kitten Alone And that was Leave My Kitten Alone, the big near miss for Little Willie John. It was an R&B hit, but at a point after the Beatles came along and he he couldn't buy a hit, hadn't had a hit since 1961, he got word that the Beatles had recorded a version of Leave My Kitten Alone. and I mean, talk about a lifeline being thrown to you, mana from heaven, but it didn't come out. Do we know why that record wasn't released?
1: Um, I think from everything I can I can uh, read about the the Beatles sessions and all that. They just thought there were too many were there too many Lennon vocals on that album. It was something like that, although I think this yeah, there were too many Lennon vocals. And maybe that was it. They had to put something else on there to to even it out. It's something that I I really wish I'd gotten to be able to ask Paul McCartney if he remembered. Um I still hope so. Maybe for a a paperback edition for an advance uh, for an next edition of the book.
2: Yeah, and if if you um, don't get Sir Paul maybe Mark Lewis and the the maniacal Beatles biographer might now yes. seems to know everything every move they ever made. But like you said he,
1: uh, the other the other ahead. big question is is um w- was Lennon primarily familiar with the Johnny Preston version of Leave My Kitten Alone which of course was a cover version of Willie's Um, Or was he also um, well aware of the Willie version? I tend to think he was aware of both. So, yeah, that's my hope anyway.
2: Yeah, listen to the Preston version. You don't, the kind of songs that drew John Lennon, things like um, To Know Him Is To Love Him. Or, um, or the early Goffin King songs, and I'm blanking on the name. But those were these big, meaty songs sung by powerful singers. And you listen to the Johnny Preston version, and you're not hearing that. And if you hear the Little Willie yeah. John version, you can hear what would have drawn Linden's ear. Um, right. Although when you listen to John's version... My God, the vibrato he's putting on those high notes. I mean, Lennon does a great version, maybe even cuts Willie on it. it, it it's hard <laughs> to say, but but he does not sing those notes at all.
1: He does not?
2: No. I mean, uh, yeah. he's hitting the notes, but he's not doing the vibrato and the high end. He's no—he's belting no. it out, and, 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 and I, L- Willie is singing I, it.
1: And I have to wonder, you know, it's kind of Leave My Kitten Alone by The Beatles. is sort of unfinished. They didn't do the full production. I have to wonder if they were going to put on the Meow Chorus later, (laughs) which was only on the Willie version, I believe.
2: (laughs) Yeah, my little girl, uh, uh, she knows The Beatles very well, and I was playing Little Willie John in the car today, and she was uh, really attracted to the meow version and then wondered why she thought he was doing a Beatles song. And she was like, how does he add something to a Beatles song like that? Uh. (laughs) uh, Yeah. But it's, it's very noticeable, but it's, it's, it's two great versions of the song. I mean, I think that the the Beatles song is more of a rock song and Willie's is, is much more danceable and fun uh, with the chorus. But at around this time, I mean, Willie's, it's not just that the hits have dried up it's that willie's become so unreliable he's almost the george jones of r&b i mean he's not showing up for gigs <laughs> it's making it into the trade papers there's a string of arrests for things like bad checks telephone fraud yeah. some assaults some marijuana possession and he loses the upsetters and so how yeah. bad of a skid was was willie on in this period
1: it was a bad skit. And, and, you know, it wasn't just one factor. It was losing the band, having no big hits. And his health was deteriorating because, you know, if you, if you take anti-seizure medication and drink, it's going to make everything worse. And, you know, everything, He was at a lull. And if, Again, if he had been able to kind of seg into a different record company, a, a refreshment of his career, that, that would have really helped. But that wasn't the case. And he was playing worse and worse gigs, worse, because by the time in Seattle the incident happened, where um, that, that led to his imprisonment that he was playing a place called the Magic Inn which uh, a guy from there who was who was at the gig told me imagine the worst club in Detroit just imagine <laughs> that was the magic inn apparently
3: so yeah. it
1: was quite a a come down for someone who had been one of the biggest r and b stars of 55 56 57
2: uh, and one thing that you do in the book that no- nothing else you're going to read about little john will tell you about is he had carved out a family life for himself i mean you don't you don't see that in the other stories about Willie john you just see the wild man backstage but when he wasn't on tour or when he was touring with his his wife and two young sons things were pretty copacetic they had a, a dream house in miami and and they had a little bit of domestic bliss i was happy to hear that oh, there was yeah. a period in his life when when he was calm and happy
1: oh yeah and i love one of the Wonderful parts of doing all this project is the time I got to spend with the John family and getting to know Darlene John, his wife, his widow, who was um, never told her story before because it was so painful at the end for her. And to find, to to see what kind of person she was that he married, that for all his wild behavior with women, especially and uh, he, he ended up uh, marrying a woman who was a dancer, but she was a quiet girl, as the other musicians called her, a quiet girl. He was, You know, a, a nice girl who would stay at home and do things and uh, keep, keep the home and keep the children, um, raise them well. And she really did a good job with those kids, with the boys, men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kevin's almost my age. And uh, it, it's amazing that she did that because the financial structure was just taken away, what, what money she had when Willie died. Uh, but but she was so helpful to me in describing Willie, describing his personality. And um, she saw him on the road, of course, because they, they met backstage at the Apollo playing cards. And she kind of saw it all. But uh, she told me, one of the, the funnest things that she said, if you uh, you want to get the feeling of being in the same room with Willie, sit between Kevin and Keith, his sons, because they're both uh, chatterboxes. They're both very lively and energetic. And it's this kind of male John energy that you sense when you hear stories about Willie and you see it in real life when you encounter his sons. <laughs> and they, they both uh, look like him, Kevin, especially. So, I, I was I got to be at Levi Stubbs' house um, after he'd had his strokes, but he could still talk somewhat, and he was telling stories about Willie. And but we all laughed until we were crying because Keith, they're both cut-ups, Kevin and Keith, just like their father. Willie was always the life of the party. Um, Keith would do an impression of his father, <laughs> singing. He'd get down on his knees to uh, kind of epitomize how how short Willie was, and he was singing like his father, he was singing like Willie, and Levi was just about dying laughing, so this was fun so it, there's, um,
2: there's some stories and, and, you tell in the book, I'm uh, sorry to cut you off, um, but that that's sort of a premonition of, of what ultimately happened, and there's stories that don't paint Willie in a bad light, it, his habit of protecting women, there was one incident when yeah. There was an African-American girl that was being lured into the woods by some white guys with Mm -hmm. bad intentions, and Willie got off the bus to rescue them.
1: Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't think about how small or what size he was. He just ran after them, and uh, nobody else on the bus did. They were all going, you're nuts. But he managed to get the girl back on the bus, and they took her to safety. Whatever was going on out there was not going to happen, and he helped her out. You know, Darlin told me stories to that effect as well. Like, I don't think it was in the book, but she told me one time that whenever he was home from the road, he would take over all the stuff, and she'd go to take the trash cans out, for example, and he'd say, "I uh, no, you're not." Or he'd, she want to go down to the corner store at night, and he'd go, "You are not going down there at night. It's too not safe." And she'd say, "Willie, what do you think I do when you're not in town? <laughs> I have to do that <laughs> stuff all the time." But he, she was. To be protected when he was there, he would not allow it. Um, and he, he was that way with his children too. He, she said, he would physically bristle if somebody he didn't know tried to pick them up as toddlers and babies. He did not want people touching his children. <laughs> so yeah, he was he was that way with his sisters too. And he had several sisters. So yeah, that was a, a good thing about him. And Darlin was very. Uh, she she spoke of him that way with great affection, that he, he always took care of her in that way. And, and interestingly enough, too, to jump back to Sid, Darlin also told me that despite all the stuff that went on with Sid, including he had told him he wouldn't let him off King Records, um, he still felt fondness for him and it was reciprocated. They they were in contact when Willie was in prison. They wrote letters back and forth and He thought of him in a paternal way, and there was a ring, supposedly, not supposedly, there was a ring that Sid had given Willie, and uh, Darlin told me about that. It got lost over the years, but he cherished that ring.
2: And yeah, so there's a family atmosphere. It might have been dysfunctional family, but there was real connection and, and real caring. And Sid had that same relationship with James Brown, where they they had their fights, but ultimately there was a great deal of love and an effective partnership. And let's hear uh, one last Willie song. This is uh, from the Capitol sessions from 1966. It wasn't released for decades, but this is "I Had a Dream." John do and I had a dream from the Capitol sessions and tell us a little bit about this. I mean, we'll get to the tragedy in, in a minute, but he's literally under indictment for manslaughter and he gets this deal from Capitol records with a $10,000 advance and gets to record with, uh, Earl Palmer and Carol Kay and the, you know, the cream of the LA, the wrecking crew, the cream of the LA session, uh, mafia. How did this happen that he, that he almost gets this deal with Capitol records?
1: Well, Sister Mabel, who, of course, had been the lead um, uh, roulette with Ray Charles, she was living in Los Angeles at the time and had contacts, and she says that she got him that deal for the $10,000 advance with capital, because Willie had told everybody that his contracts were up, Um, he thought, because a certain time had passed, that was the case, and it really wasn't. But, um, so that you know he was able at that point he was no longer jumping bail they allowed him to go home to detroit and to do various gigs so he went down and it was his dream to record at capitol because he loved sinatra he loved that whole milieu and studio a at capitol records are you kidding it was his dream he even dressed like those guys like the rat pack and uh David Axelrod he was given the job since he had Lou Rawls under his um, purview. He was the guy who who did that, who produced it. And yeah, I talked to David about it and it it, it was just um it was a wonderful session and uh, Darlin remembers hanging out with uh, Lou Rawls' mom and they had a great time recording Although, um, David said some uh, things to make me believe that he he thought more of Lou Rawls than Willie. I'm not sure if that was a behavior thing or what, but it, it, they went really well. It was just that it had to be totally shelved. Once, uh, Sid Nathan got wind of what was going on and, and King, they said, no, you're not doing it. And it was the biggest heartbreak, I think, for the family and for Willie, but the family for sure, because they, Someone anonymously sent them um, an acetate of the the session when after it was shelved, and just I think it was just after Willie died that he, they were sent this acetate in the mail, and Kevin John said he would play it just over and over and over right after his father died, and until he wore it out basically. So it became a a thing with him that this was his father's dream to to record this, this jazz album at Capitol Studios. And he wanted to get it out. And uh, at various times, it they, he would be in contact with Capitol over the years and it would be like, well, nope. This, this guy dies in prison. We're not going to put this record out, you know. Um, but then there, you know, they would claim they lost it. And then, oh, no, we didn't lose it. here it is. And uh, yeah, it was a checkered history with that recording.
2: And eventually, though, it does come out. Ace Records out of England puts it out. And, and uh, the John Brothers had four goals when they, they said to, you know, they wanted to get their father in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or see him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They wanted to get the unreleased record out. They wanted to get a book written about him. And they wanted uh, to see a, a major motion picture about him. And so far, they've done three out of the four.
1: Right. It's, um, we've had a couple people option the book. Um, to make a movie, and it it just, like, a lot of things like that, things w- didn't always, didn't work out. But I, I'm still hopeful, because, you know, how many more movies can you have about, we all know James Brown's story pretty much. Um, this is a story people don't know, and it just, it it, got, it impinges on so many other acts. Um, it's, it's got the Beatles, it's got Elvis Presley, it's got, Peggy Lee in the, the whole 50s scene. Um, it's got the big band. The whole um, the way Detroit was in the 1950s is fascinating when you talk to guys like Levi Stubbs and all the guys pre-Motown. These people think of Detroit in terms of Motown, but the 1950s were almost more interesting. What led to Motown and how that, all that happened, which, by the way, um, Mabel John told me several times that she, um, her brother Willie, and Barry Gordy admired each other, but Willie needed a, a a going concern. In 1955, there was no lockdown. It wasn't even thought of by Barry Gordy. He was shuffling around in town, uh, and by the time um, he would have been able to record Willie John, he was tightly wound into King. It mu- it's one of those woulda, coulda, shoulda. Maybe something could have happened again after King wound down, if he could have gotten him out of the King contract in the 60s, because around 63, 64, when King was winding down with Willie and vice versa, that was when Motown was exploding, of course.
2: Yeah, and And let's... Go ahead.
1: I think there was... Mabel did tell me that um, she tried to bring... um, Gordy songs a couple times to Willie, but none of that worked out.
2: Yeah, that was when Gordy was writing hit songs for Jackie Wilson and producing them, and then Gordy went on to produce some hits for Marv Johnson, who uh, figures in a story about gunplay that I want to get in before <laughs> we talk about the final tragedy. So Willie and Marv Johnson, and Marv Johnson, by all accounts, uh, and maybe I'm sure his family has another side to it, but if you read the Motown tales, Barry Gordy paints a very negative picture of Marv Johnson as this pretty egomaniacal guy. And Willie and Marv get into it backstage and and Willie calls him uh, out into the alley and what happens when they when they go back into the alley to fight
1: well Willie pulls out a gun and he <laughs> <laughs> he, he always had to equalize the the thing Marv was a big guy um Marv was a sweet guy, too. I don't think... I, it's hard for me to picture Marv as a fighter because I knew him. I met him in the course of reporting on Motown, and he just didn't seem that kind of guy, although most r and b stars and musicians of the time packed guns because they had to on the road. They had to, do, to get their money. They had to to protect themselves from other bad guys, and the promoters all had guns. So it wasn't that unusual a thing, but Willie would... He would pull a gun just to be a an idiot, but yeah, as Marv recounted, he had the wrong bullets and the wrong gun, and the bullets just <laughs> fell out of the gun. As, you know, Willie was no big time gangster. He was just trying to let get people to leave him alone or or be impressed, and it, so it had a, it had the effect kind of. Uh, they were once they got done laughing.
2: <laughs> and 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 in the book, you do a pretty good job of detective work on what happened. Uh, in seattle on that fateful day and it's it's pretty dark stuff i mean this is this is seedy stuff he's playing the worst club in seattle which uh is being compared like you said to the worst clubs in detroit and he ends up partying on into the next day and is in a in a sort of speakeasy in a dude's house on a sunday afternoon in seattle and what happened then
1: yeah we call those blind pigs in detroit and it's pretty common in in uh In the music business, the musicians always know where to go afterwards, where you can drink illegally. Um, And apparently, I lucked out because I found the writer of a, there wasn't a lot of stuff written about Willie over the years, but there was a Village Voice story done by Kim Field. And you can't even find that original Village Voice story without digging a lot, because uh, that particular issue got the warehouse burned down. Warehouses always burn down. <laughs> but <laughs> I managed to find a fan or, of Willie's in Detroit who got the copy to me, and then I tracked Kim down, the author of that story. He's a musician himself, and he's living in Seattle. And he was a, he got me in touch with the prosecuting attorney who had prosecuted Willie which was oh amazing that this guy was not only still alive, but that he said it was the most unusual and memorable case he'd ever been involved in. So thanks to Kim, um, I was able to talk to him and a couple others. And the family even thought at one point they might try to get an innocence project kind of thing involved in this. Um, but it's... Um, you know, Art Swanson is the, was the guy, that, he was the retired prosecutor. He was a young prosecutor at the time. And he, what he told me was, even though he was prosecuting Willie, he saw so many opportunities that the defense attorney should have been taking to defend Willie. But the defense attorney was this guy named Bill Lanning, who actually had a music background. He's the one who got Stan Getz off when Stan Getz was in town and he was having trouble with drugs and he knocked over a pharmacy or something but by the time uh, Willie's thing happened in uh, 64 this was like uh it, it was he was a drunk himself lanning according to Swanson and he was not at the top of his game so um the only defense that lanning put up and what had happened was this guy in the after hours club which was in a house, um and there were all sorts of people there, there were judges, there were white people, black people, uh, people from all forms of society. It wasn't just a it wasn't a, a, a sleazy thing. It was more of a nightlife thing. Um they were there drinking and Willie had been drinking a long time and he'd been followed his party had been followed by this tall guy who was sort of a, had an anger issue and kept arguing with people. He was um, a railroad worker, they've discovered later. And he this railroad worker had an argument with a black attorney at the party about Martin Luther King Jr. and nonviolence. And then he started insulting some of the women and Willie took exception to that. And then every, things get confused at this point because at some point a knife appears at some point, the guy, the railroad worker falls over and people think he's drunk and leave him alone. Or even if they think he's hurt, they're afraid to call the police or the ambulance service. They want to, they try to first find a doctor or an ambulance service that is in cahoots that won't report this to the police and they can't find anyone who will come and things, things get worse and worse. And, uh, even Willie Willie claims that he called an ambulance service, but by the time an actual ambulance came, it was too late for this guy. So the question, well, who had knifed him, um, there was just so many different stories that people heard from the witnesses there, witnesses recanted. There were a lot of people who just ran out of the house before any help came and because they didn't want to be caught there. Well, Art Swanson told me that one witness actually had herself committed to an insane asylum, so she wouldn't have to testify. Yeah. It, it was just unbelievable. But what some of the things that Lanning could have presented as a defense—the size alone—Willie was five foot four and five foot five at best, and this guy was six foot three who had attacked him and in the, the course of the fight, that would have been a defense. Um, another defense would have been, there were other people arguing with this guy at the party. There was confusion. Nobody was quite sure and had different stories. Who Somebody knifed him, but who did it? The confusion over that, that could have been a factor, too. But the only defense that Lanning put forward was that, Lanning, that Willie had an epileptic seizure, and he couldn't remember what went on.
2: And he also looked... Left- Willie yeah. uh, testify on stage, which uh, on on not on stage, but uh, in court. Yeah, uh, but but right. and it took on a performance error which you know most defense attorneys are like, never, never, never let your client testify. Take the Fifth Amendment protection, and then the appeal is botched, and Willie, uh, even though he gets to go out and tour and and record this whole album with Capitol Records. Uh, during the time of the the legal process ultimately he he ends up in prison and he gets sent to walla walla which is sort of the san quentin of washington state i mean that is a scary grim awful place yeah. and he's in there with bad people and then he passes suddenly of a heart attack which you think is suspicious at best
1: it, it was cause, i mean uh, his his wife darlin said she got letters um from an inmate at Walla Walla who was telling her that he was not getting proper treatment for his seizures. And that's not, not surprising at all that, um, that, that would have weakened him tremendously. And he was also a, a bit of a smart aleck and he, he, that this inmate also said he was being beaten, which was, uh, you know, again, no, apart from Walla Walla, Seattle was a much a very conservative place, especially compared to Detroit, where he grew up. And uh, a smart Alec black guy was not going to play well. but in the the prison system, the the medical attention was not good. so it's it's highly doubtful that it was just a simple heart attack. There was a, a, you know, a period of time and he was just not well treated and probably beaten. So it was death by prison guard is what I think Art Swanson told me.
2: And, uh, a very American phenomenon continued into the nineties with the treatment of old dirty bastard from the Wu-Tang clan, uh, in prison. So, uh, a tale we're, we keep telling and hopefully we can stop telling it at some point, but kind of a tragic end to a great life of little Willie John and, and Susan, uh, the book is fever, little Willie John, a fast life, mysterious death and the birth of soul by Susan White. All. Susan, thanks so much for coming on the show and telling us this incredible story.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Nate. I love telling the story and people should remember Willie.
2: Yeah, and, and by all means, hear the music. This, If you at all like rock and roll or rhythm and blues or soul or jazz, Willie did it all and there's a great body of work.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast. Nate will be back next week with David Stubbs, author of Future Sounds, the story of electronic music from Stockhausen to Skrillex. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. little willy john a fast life mysterious death and the birth of soul is published by titan books please support our show by ordering via the amazon referral link on our website let it roll podcast.com